G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Hey, so good to be with you. My name is Andy Judd. Uh, it's my joy. I serve as uh, a teacher at Ridley College just up the road, and I'm grateful to Guy and the team for the invitation uh, to come speak this morning. Special welcome if you're joining us online this morning. Great to have you. Great to be opening the word with you. One of my favorite subjects uh, at university was philosophy. I love philosophy uh, because it was an opportunity to ask the questions that no one else was asking or people are sometimes afraid to ask some of the big questions in life. One of the, the big questions that philosophers love to wrestle with is the question of death. Uh, it's been said that philosophy is about learning how to die, which is a bit morbid but not untrue. Uh, one of my favorite philosophers is the German philosopher Martin Heidegger. He defined existence, authentic, authentic existence as a human, is being able to uh, confront our existence as a being towards death. In other words, an authentic person is someone who realizes, is constantly aware of the impending reality of their own death. Now, I wanted to be a good philosopher, so I went online and searched for the death day calculator. You know this thing? It works out based on your age and health and lifestyle when statistically you're most likely to die. Uh, my death day, just in case you're wondering, is Wednesday the 3rd of January 2074. So I've uh, put a reminder in my phone, because uh, that's bin day in our house, to remind Steph to take the bins out um, that morning. Uh, Viktor Frankl, another great philosopher, great thinker. Uh, he was also a Holocaust survivor, prompted many of his deep reflections in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He makes the argument, which I think has become popular in a lot of the movies that I've been seeing recently, that without death, human lives would be ultimately incomplete and without meaning. In other words, we need death. It's not something to be mourned or avoided because otherwise our lives would not have meaning. They would be incomplete. 
Now, I think he's right that death is an unavoidable part of life. That's true. But it made me wonder, is death really necessary to give our lives meaning? When a life is saved, nobody complains to the doctors. Oh, now my life's incomplete. What were you doing? No one complains when their life is extended. That other great uh, 20th century philosopher Bruce Lee once said that the key to immortality is living a life worth remembering. Which I get what he's saying, but I think many of us would, would push back on that and say that the, the key to achieving immortality is not dying, is to have continual eternal life, not just to be remembered. It's nice to be remembered, but it's even better to be there for when your children and grandchildren achieve their milestones. So the philosophers of our age, I think, wrestle continually and haven't quite got to the heart or haven't made sense of death yet. The philosophers of our age can't make sense of death. The best doctors in our world can only delay and postpone death. But today we're actually going to meet someone who has a bold claim. The claim that he, in fact, has the power not merely to make sense of death, but to overturn it. And that's the passage that we're going to open today. Let's have a look. We begin in part one, which I'm going to call Death is Real even for Jesus. We had a bit of this chapter read, but let's just go back to the start. If you have a Bible, great to have the Bible open. Otherwise, BibleGateway.com will get you there. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. I've got a map for you, uh, just so you're kind of aware of where we're at in the world. Um, Bethany is a few kilometers out of Jerusalem, which you can see down there at the uh, bottom. Um, Think sort of like Richmond to the CBD of Melbourne, right? It's a few kilometers out uh, near to the heart of the action. Um, Jesus is not in um, Richmond slash Bethany, where Lazarus is. Jesus is, in fact, up north, uh, about 160 kilometers away when this story starts, when he hears word that Lazarus is seriously ill. He's about four days walking journey away, or think uh, Bendigo to Melbourne, but you have to walk. Now, Jesus loved Martha, verse 5, and her sister and Lazarus. Ever thought about this as a side tangent? Jesus had close friends. Jesus had close friends, and one of those friends is very, very ill. Now, if he leaves now, Jesus will maybe be there in time. Lazarus might have a chance. But instead, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, Jesus stays two days longer in the place where he was. What? He loves Lazarus, so when he hears that he's ill, he stays for two days before he goes. Now, for us, this is perplexing. Like, Jesus, why do you wait there for two days? It's hard for us to understand. But actually, for Jesus' disciples with him, that's not the hard bit to understand. The hard bit to understand is why he goes at all. Right? Because some background here. The disciples are confused by something. Right? We're missing this maybe if, if we haven't been tracking along. So let's just pause for a second. What's been going? Well, Jesus has been healing the sick. He's been feeding thousands. These are the the seventh of the seven signs that we've looked at in this series. But uh, they say no good deed goes unpunished. And that's true in Jesus' case. Because in response to these amazing uh, miracles, these signs showing Jesus' glory, a bunch of really powerful people with vested interests suddenly want to kill Jesus. 
They don't like him taking the glory. They don't like him taking away their influence and power, and so they conspire to kill him. They feel threatened by Jesus. They want Jesus dead. That's why Jesus is up in Bendigo, away from the heart of the action. And his disciples think, well, hang on, let's just leave those murdery people down there alone for a bit. Right? Let's not go there and risk getting killed. No point us all dying trying to heal Lazarus. Right? He, sorry, Lazarus, you're on your own. Right? We need to look after ourselves. So they try to talk Jesus out of going at all. But because Jesus loves Lazarus, he does. After waiting for two days, he sets off from Bendigo to Richmond into uh, Jerusalem in Bethany. But tragically, by the time Jesus arrives, after this four-day walking journey, it's too late. Now, when Jesus came, verse 17, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Uh, In Jesus' culture, three days is about the point where you're properly dead, right? There's nothing like that's the point at which the soul has left the body in that culture. So after four days, you are very dead. This is game over. And they would have been thinking, well, not even Jesus can help now. Now, it's fair to say that um, it's a four-day journey. So even if Jesus had left immediately without delaying, Lazarus would still have been dead by the time he arrived. But Martha and Mary still give Jesus a piece of their mind. See what Martha says in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Maybe you can relate to Martha a little bit in this. Right? Martha, she knows Jesus. She knows that Jesus is loving. She knows that Jesus is scary powerful. He's, he's healed people. He's fed thousands. So what took him so long? Where was he when, when she needed him the most? And hang on, uh, did he even need to be here? I mean, Jesus healed a man in chapter 4 without going anywhere near him, uh, over Wi-Fi almost. So couldn't Jesus have just done something up, up north? She's perplexed, she's confused. She's, I think, a bit angry at Jesus. Now, this story in, in, in my uh, Bible is called The Raising of Lazarus. But actually, I think it really should be called The Raising of Mary and Martha. Do you know what I mean? Right, the raising of Mary and Martha. Because the way John tells the story, it's more about what's going on for the sisters. We don't hear what Lazarus was thinking. He's dead. But for Martha and Mary, those left behind, it's the story of Martha, say, as she comes through the pit of despair and disappointment with God, with Jesus, and comes out the other side having encountered the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Maybe you can relate to what Martha's going through in this story. I I don't know, maybe you've experienced sickness in your family recently. Uh, Maybe you're at sea right now with unanswered prayer. And, And maybe you've found yourself in the dark of night asking this question, what are you doing, God? Why did you let this happen? Where were you when I needed you the most? 
And if that's a teensy bitty like where you're at, then the story of the raising of Martha is for you today. Because this world is full of sadness. This world is full of grief, even for Jesus' closest friends. And faith in Jesus means trusting Jesus when we don't yet see what he's about to do. We don't yet know what he's up to. So faith is about trusting Jesus to fill in the blanks that we can't see, the bits that aren't obvious to us. Like Martha, faith is not blind faith. Faith is not blind faith. Faith is based on what she has already seen. Her faith is based on what she already knows about Jesus, that he's good and that he's powerful. It's not blind faith. But it is trusting Jesus to fill in the bits that she can't see yet. Because death is real and it's senseless. It makes no sense. It's also not the end of the story. And part of the life of faith is being prepared in the dark of night to cry out to God, to cry out to Jesus. And some people think that that moment of despair, that crying out like, Jesus, where are you? Is a lack of faith, but actually the opposite. Because faith is when you go to him knowing that he is good and powerful and yet you don't understand. Lord, if you'd been here. So don't be afraid in the dark of night to cry out to Jesus as Mary and Martha did. That brings us to the second part of the story. Act two. Jesus' love is more powerful than death. Uh, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, deeply moved, greatly troubled. This is kind of an understatement, actually. Uh, The words here imply a deep distress, a a, a grief, even grief shading into anger. As if the world is at sea. It's It's a feeling that many of us can relate to, but I don't know if you've ever thought that Jesus felt that feeling. Jesus knows what it is like to lose someone he dearly, dearly loves. Here's some Bible trivia for you. You know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? It's here. Yeah. John chapter 11, verse 35. But do you know what also the most profound theological statement ever written is? This one too. Chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. Uh, by the way, not, not a quiet, manly tear. Now, these words imply visible weeping. Grown man weeping tears. Even though, let's remember, Jesus knows how this story ends. Yet the reality of death is still something that leaves him profoundly upset, troubled, grieved, even angry. So don't let anyone ever tell you that death is natural. It might be normal. It happens to everyone. But it is an intruder in the good world that God made. It is an intruder in creation. It's not the way the world was meant to be. And it has no place in the world where Jesus reigns as king. And why I said this is the most profound theological sentence ever written? Well, it means that the God that we meet in Jesus, who is, by the way, the only God there is, 
The true God knows what grief is intimately. Like he, like not just like he's seen it in other people. He knows what grief is. Think about that for a moment. The God you worship or the God you have waiting for you to come and know the true God is not up there aloof, kind of looking down on us, keeping his professional distance. He's here with us in this world, in this world that is not the way it's meant to be. He's here with us, weeping with us. Jesus knows what grief is. Uh, Jesus never promises, by the way, that Christians will be taken out of this world, that we'll be immune to grief and suffering and death. But he does promise to be there with us. And he does claim to have the power to do something about it once and for all. In fact, he has begun. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says. I actually don't think Martha knew what the ending of this story was going to be. I don't think she could have guessed, actually. So far, they know that Jesus is, a, is an impressive healer. They know that Jesus is very good and loving. But a healer is no good to a dead man. And yet, it's interesting, isn't it? Martha has seen enough of Jesus that she still instinctively trusts him in, in this moment, in her grief, in the darkness, in not being able to see what's happening. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. City on a hill, do you believe this? Ask yourself, do you believe this? Do you trust Jesus that he is good to his word, that he knows what he's talking about? That he doesn't just have empathy for us in our suffering and death, but he can do something about it. Because if Jesus really is the resurrection and the life, think about what that means. I mean, for you. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, what does that mean for your eventual death? Because whether God answers your prayers now or in the future, nothing can break you in a way that God cannot ultimately in Jesus fix. Think about that. Nothing can break you in this life that Jesus can't fix. Nothing can put you beyond his love, not even death. I love how the great English poet John Donne puts this. You might know this poem. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read the first and the last bit. Trying to capture something of this great truth, John Donne writes this Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. And he ends, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Now, how do we know that Jesus has the power to make death die? Well, because he's begun. See this verse 38. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the uh, sister of the dead man, said to him, uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Uh, I love the King James Version at this point. He stinketh. 
she says. Let's see what happens next, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And against all hope, against all expectation, the dead man does. Can you just imagine that scene for a moment? What kind of voice do even the dead obey? Well, it's the very same voice that says in the beginning, let there be light, isn't it? And there was. It's the same voice that brings something out of nothing that says to this dead corpse, Oi, get out of there. Jesus is so much more than a miracle worker. Are these not tricks? These are to show his glory that he is the one who originally said in the beginning, let there be light dwelling amongst us. How that even works, it's hard to get your head around. But that's who he is. Lazarus, come out. And he did. Because Jesus is God, not just any God, not just a God. He is the same God who made the world, the only God there is, who called light out of darkness, who created the world and the planets all with a breath, who has the power over death, the resurrection and the life. And so the raising of Lazarus really is a sign of greater things to come, isn't it? I mean, when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, I was joking before, it's kind of like he's half resurrected, really. All right, this is not the ultimate resurrection for Lazarus. When he comes out, he's still kind of like... Needs help getting out of his grave clothes. He's kind of a bit of a pathetic sight. They kind of have to help him out of his, um, of his grave clothes, of the straps. His, his body is still under the curse of death. I mean, Lazarus is not here today. He did die eventually, again. But the raising of Lazarus here, this half-resurrection that he receives now, is a sign of greater things to come. The raising of Lazarus is a sign pointing towards the future when Jesus' ultimate showdown with death itself will take place in the cross and the empty grave of Jesus. This is a taste of things to come. I think of uh, that night in 1928 when researchers at the uh, University of Sydney in a hospital in Melbourne, uh, in Sydney, sorry, revived a stillborn infant with a new invention which would go on to become the pacemaker. Just think of that night in 1928 when a little heart started to beat again. Now, in that moment, the world changed, didn't it? Something new was in the world. Now, we'd have to wait for 30 years. The world didn't change overnight in the same way. It would be 30 years before the first patient received a pacemaker. But in that room in 1928, some wonderful new invention came into the world. And I think the world did start to change. That one revived heart was a sign of things to come. And I think of that when I think of Lazarus. One heart started beating again. And in that moment, the world began to change. The raising of Lazarus is a sign of things to come, a sign of a world that is about to be different forever, a world in which death will die. It's a sign that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the resurrection and the life And it's a sign of his glory that we can take him at his word. It's a sign that whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
yet shall have eternal life. It's a sign that everyone who believes in Jesus will never die. Now on that day, as you can imagine, many people began to put their trust in Jesus. Many people began to put their trust in Jesus, this one who has the power over death. Others, though, it must be said, also had a different reaction. If you read on, you'll see that some people actually on that, on that day hated Jesus all the more. Can you imagine? And they started plotting to kill Jesus. In fact, they even started plotting to kill poor old Lazarus, which is like tall poppy syndrome or something. Right? They just want to tear him down. Poor guy. But no, they, they decide to kill Jesus this day. And so we have these two reactions, and the question for us is, what's our reaction going to be? To this man who has power over death. How will you respond to these signs that we've been seeing? Because Jesus is not just speaking to Martha and Mary, he's speaking to you today. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Do you believe this? Because if you do, that changes everything. Now, in a moment, uh, we're going to have a chance to respond some more in prayer and in singing. But before we do that, I felt it would be really helpful uh, to spend some time just thinking about how the realities of this passage and these truths help us face what we meet in in this life, the realities of of death and grief. And so I've asked uh, the Reverend Mrs. Stephanie Judd, if she's here, good, Uh, who is also my wife, by the way, uh, to join me for this part. So um, give a a hand to welcome Steph up, please. That'd be great. Welcome, wife. Thanks for the welcome. Got some stools. Take a seat. Excellent. Now, Steph, um, thank you for coming up. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, Now, we've been kind of wrestling with this passage um, and the realities of death. Now, I I remember you kind of talk about Christmas as a time to kind of pull out a a chair at the table for grief. Mm. Could you talk us through that a little bit, that that, that image? Yeah, love to. Yeah. In the beginning of uh, 2021, my father died. And so this will be our third Christmas without dad. And Dad was an amazing man, a man of great wisdom. Still get emotional. Here we are. I'm going to talk about grief in a moment. But amazing man, a man of such kindness. Um, He had this incredible combination of strength, um, but also warmth. Amazing. And such a wise man. And I loved him deeply. He loved me deeply. And because I loved deeply, many of you know what this will experience when you lose someone you love, you grieve deeply. And... Um, and what I discovered is that, um, you know, after that season, you have the funeral, you have um, the flowers, the, the, the very generous friends who bring gifts and help out with dinners, and after all that kind of fades away, you're left with this companion, grief. And grief stays with you. It's, it's a, he, it is a constant companion. And grief is a very unpredictable, temperamental companion. Uh, sometimes uh, you'll be, you know, sitting in a staff meeting, doing Pilates, whatever it is, and he just sort of jumps in front of, front of you and demands your attention, and you have to comply. So there you are. Hello, grief. And the tears come, and the sickening stomach feeling comes. And at other times, he's just sort of there, just sort of waiting in the wings, ready 
for a moment where you might have a, a time to just look him in the eyes and have a chat and move on. Uh, but he's always there. And, and what I've discovered about Christmas is that it's, it's a strange, it can be a strange season with grief. Because in this season of wonder, this season of life and hope and joy, it's sort of like, what does it look like for me to enter into that with a companion that signals death and loss? Like, it's kind of like, uh, I don't, confession here, I'm a Married at First Sight um, fan, left side entry, um, but they have these things like dinner parties that are just like producers set them up for extreme conflict. You know, it's like, what's going to happen here? Conflict's going to explode. And it can kind of feel like that. You know, what does it look like to pull up a chair for grief at Christmas time? How does grief come together with joy and wonder? It's like something's going to go wrong, <laughs> you know? And there can be different approaches to that. One approach is to really just ignore grief and say, yeah, yeah, I don't want to deal with you right now. Joy, wonder, hope. Um, or another approach is to, you know, recognise you're carrying the grief and you're in that and to kind of say, well, this is not the year for me to experience that joy and wonder and hope. But actually, one thing I've discovered, which I found incredibly helpful over the last couple of years, is to look grief in the eyes, to acknowledge him, to pull up a chair for grief at Christmas, to say, come to the table, to sit grief opposite the gospel of Jesus Christ and to just let them chat and to like be an observer in that. How does that conversation go? What is said? What's that intersection? And actually I've found that it's that, that conversation, the place of the meeting of, of grief and loss and death with hope of the gospel, of that message of, of new life where the good news of Jesus just shines so brightly where the gospel becomes real in a very tangible way. It's a spectacular conversation, actually, to witness. Mm. And it's not like Jesus hasn't met grief before. Right. Today. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, thanks, Seth. That's so helpful. Um, stepping back a little bit, as Christians, I mean, how should we think about death? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to think about death. The way that the Bible thinks about death, death, according to the Bible, is the enemy as Andrew signaled earlier, it's not something to sentimentalise. It's not just like someone going to a better place. It's not a natural part of life. It is an intrusion into God's good creation, his purposes to us. It is the enemy. And you, know, you think about God's first command to Adam in the garden. Do you remember what happened in the garden? God brings Adam into the Garden of Eden. He says, here it is, work it, care for it. He says, you can eat from any tree in this garden, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you eat of it, what will happen? You will surely die. Now, is God being unjust there? Is he being unfair? I don't think so. I think that command is just sort of pregnant with love. Death is not something he wants and intends and has purposed for Adam. At the psalmist in Psalm chapter 6 speaks of death and he says, among the dead, who proclaims you, God? You know, who, who praises you from the grave? And the point is that death is not helpful in our relationship with God. Death is a separation, inherently a separation between us and God. It's a separation between others and we're not designed for separation. We're not designed for death. We're designed for life.
I love that, Steph, how you're kind of tying us back to the start of the story. Right. Because in the middle of the movie, sometimes something doesn't make sense. But if you know where we started and yeah. where we're ending, that, that makes it... Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, what do you think, um, just as, as Christians in our Christian life, what difference does it make to our relationship with God to have this consciousness of, of death and what Jesus is doing in death? How, how does that make a difference yeah. to your life as a Christian? Totally. One of the reasons I think it's important to acknowledge the design that God has for us in creation and the enemy and the opposition that death is to that is that when we get that, when we get that death is an enemy, it brings clarity and understanding and appreciation for what Jesus has accomplished for us. You know, Jesus didn't just come as a wise man. He didn't just come as a you know, miraculous healer. Jesus ultimately came to defeat our great enemy. That is why Jesus has come. He has come to defeat our enemy of death. He has come to bring death to death. He has come to end the separation, to end the loss. He has come to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, to as a man, as a human, to take the death that humans face, but then to rise above it, to bring victory, to bring hope, to bring life. You know, the good news is that if you are in Christ today, that you will live even though you die. You will live even though you die. You know, one day, as we've heard, Jesus is going to return again. And when he comes, he's going to raise bodies from the grave. You know, when we drive past grave sites, when I've got my kids in the back, I say to them, guys, that is going to be a hectic day on the day of the resurrection. You know, that's going to be a crazy place. Bodies, do you believe this? This is what the Bible says. Bodies raised from the grave, clothed in you with new flesh, new heavenly bodies. He will raise us who are in Christ to be with him in the new creation where there will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more grief, no more pain. The old order of things has gone away. That is the hope and that is the promise. And when we get how horrible death is and what an intrusion is we just get how spectacular that is so you know for those of you who are here today and you're grieving perhaps you're feeling angry at death like Martha perhaps uh, you are consumed by that feeling that sickening feeling in your stomach right now that you just kind of can't get out of or perhaps there's even just uncertainty anxiety about your own death you know I want to actually affirm you in that right now Because as you grieve, you are sharing in the heart of God. Who wept at death, who wept at death, who entered into the pit of death and swallowed it up. Mm. You know, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting at verse 54, I think it is. It says, um, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, what is written will have come true. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but praise be to the Lord... We have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. So good. 
What an spectacular hope. And that's our invitation today, to be able to, to proclaim that good news for us, to proclaim that hope, and to say yes to that assurance of the resurrection to come. So good, Steph. Um, would you pray for us now as we kind of process some of that? And I think yes. there'll be opportunities for people to pray right. as well if they want individual prayer yes. afterwards. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'd love actually to pray, particularly for those perhaps who are here today who are feeling that despair of death. Maybe it's of their own death, pending death. Maybe it's grief of someone that they've loved, that you might know the assurance, the hope of the resurrection today. Um, how about we pray together? Please, yeah. Oh, Lord God, just thank you so much for your great love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you went all the way into death, that the Son of God did not stay distant but leaned in, that took the sting of death upon himself but was victorious above it. Thank you, God, that death could not hold him down. Thank you, God, that death was not the final word. But in Jesus Christ, we say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Praise be to God, we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord God, right now I pray for those here today who are grieving, who are anxious, who feel overwhelmed by the realities of loss and brokenness, this great intrusion of death. Lord, I pray today that you might give them a vision of all that it is that Jesus does in his power and his love. And on that final day when he will return, that he will raise the bodies from the grave and all in Christ will be able to enjoy a new creation. No more separation. No more loss. Eternal life. and relationship with you and with your people. So God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters today. Would you comfort them? Would you lift their hope, strengthen their faith? And maybe we'd be people who look forward to that final day, knowing that in Christ that is our home and that is our hope. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>